Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly, and for today's detail, get yourself a map of Antarctica. The last true wilderness on Earth, a frontier for science and increasingly strategic jostling. Now, find Inexpressible Island. It's just a dot on the map, but it has a story to tell from the heroic age. It was named Inexpressible by Scott's Northern Party, a group of men that he sent out starting from Cape Adair to explore the geology of the coastline. They were supposed to spend a month there, but they were trapped there for winter. They spent nine months without a change of clothes, without a bath, living in a snow cave on this island. The site is protected by the New Zealand Antarctic Heritage Trust, but now that rocky outcrop in the Ross Sea is getting a new occupant. China is building its fifth Antarctic research station there. There's certainly constructive ambiguity about China's uh, long-term ambitions in Antarctica. China's not the only one muscling up on the frozen continent. Today on The Detail, no one owns it, but everyone wants a slice of Antarctica. We look at why the treaty system governing it is on thin ice, what China is up to, and why everyone, including us, is spending mega money there. The Antarctic is the only one of our continents of which we haven't killed each other. We haven't, we haven't had a war in the Antarctic, right? Dr Alan Hemmings is an Antarctica expert at Canterbury University. He's been to the ice several times and his work focuses on the geopolitics of the continent. The continent's 14 million square kilometres. And if you include the Southern Ocean up to, say, the Antarctic Convergence, which is where the very cold Antarctic water meets the slightly less cold sub-Antarctic water, you're talking about an area which is about one-tenth of the surface of our planet. And that, and that would be the sensible boundary for what we would call the Antarctic, the continent surrounding islands and that part of the Southern Ocean south of the Antarctic Convergence. Have countries staked a claim on the whole area? Uh, no, no, they haven't, because you can't, you can't claim the sea, at least not since the early 17th century. And there are seven claims to the Antarctic, or parts of the Antarctic, and they're all based on sort of pie-shaped sections. They're defined as the, the areas south of 60 degrees south latitude, but in fact those territorial claims only go up to the margin of the Antarctic continent. And those claims were not recognised by the vast majority of the world states um, before the Antarctic Treaty. And Article 4 of the 1959 Antarctic Treaty, uh, in, in the cliché, freezes your positions on those claims. So what we see, in fact, is the Antarctic run as a sort of quasi-condominium. What, what, what does that actually mean? <laughs> well, it's an area where, for all intents and purposes, decisions have to be made collectively. And that's done through a mechanism that's called consensus decision-making. What it basically requires is that everybody thinks it's OK to agree something. But if you have a state or states that won't join that consensus, then you can't decide to do something. And this is the dilemma we've seen with marine protected areas, for example. How does a country make a claim on a slice of Antarctica in the first place? Do they just kind of turn up and go, 
well, nobody's claimed that bit, so that'll be for us. Yeah, essentially, <laughs> you've, you've got it in one. I, I say to people who ask this question that European states and their settler colonies in the southern hemisphere have behaved in Antarctica in just the same way as European peoples have everywhere else in the world, essentially since the late 15th century. You arrive somewhere, there are either no people or there are indigenous people that you disparage and you don't recognise as having rights. And if no other equivalent power has beaten you to it, you say, we claim this. Now, what you've seen in the Antarctic is um, an argument essentially based on this route. First of all, certain European countries sent expeditions which reached the very edges of the Antarctic and on the basis of that claimed for their respective monarchs huge areas in the Antarctic. All of those seven claims are effectively formalised by the end of World War II. At the end of World War II, we couldn't even draw an accurate map of the outlines of the Antarctic. So, you know, to give you a kind of reality check, we claim stuff before we know who it is. And, and many of the expeditions, even the really famous ones, you know, the Scots and the Shackletons and the uh, Amundsens, they merely scratched the surface of the, the huge areas that on the basis of their activities, their governments chose to claim. There's a more modern uh, obligation, which is uh, effective occupation. You can't just claim a territory, that you, but you actually have to show you are in some way uh, managing it. And the threshold for showing that is lower in a kind of remote place like the Antarctic than it would be in a, anywhere else in the world, basically. But have any of the claimants really just demonstrated effective management? of their claims, issuing postage stamps, making proclamations, appointing magistrates. Anyway, so this is all parked. This is all parked by Article 4 of the 1959 Antarctic Treaty. And although you will encounter some people who still talk about, you know, the Argentine Antarctic Territory, the Australian Antarctic Territory, et cetera, et cetera, these really have no functional significance outside the kind of narrow codification within our particular countries. No Russian or Czech citizen is in any way going to seek uh, authorization from uh, New Zealand to operate in what New Zealand calls the Ross Dependency. So just to recap, New Zealand's Ross Dependency, where Scott bases, is one of the seven territorial claims. The others are Norway, UK, Australia, Argentina, Chile and France. But these are claims that other countries do not recognise. The continent is governed by the Antarctic Treaty signed in 1959, which states Antarctica shall be used for peaceful, scientific purposes only. Two separate meetings are held each year. One focuses on the fisheries. The other is, as Alan Hemming says, the, the go-to, go-to shop. shop. For most high policy issues, as well as much operational practice in the Antarctic. But one would have to say that over the last decade in particular, we haven't done much high policy analysis at those annual Antarctic Treaty consultative meetings um, and indeed, we found it very hard 
to agree any legally binding things beyond the designation of some protected areas and their management plans. So the system has, in a sense, been hollowed out over the last uh, 10 years. And why is that? How long have you got? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, um, it seems to have become harder to agree to anything. The the standard trope um, in Western countries is that the Russians and the Chinese are um, always blocking any uh, proposal. And and that sometimes occurs in Kamla too, particularly around the thing that most listeners will have um, heard most about in the Antarctic in recent years, the designation of marine protected areas. It's quite clear that both China and Russia are the principal resistors to the designation of marine protected areas. On the other side, I think, is the argument that the Antarctic Treaty System has not really transformed itself from a Western-centric system in the kind of global diplomatic sphere into a system which is more reflective of the interests of a wider community of states in, in the world. And so this is part of that more uh, general rubric about you know the implications of the rise of china relative decline of the west is the world order within which this is happening um, a welcoming of such developments or are we seeing resistance amongst the old power blocks to the seemingly inevitable transformations of of global power so those those issues all shake out in in, in the antarctic So, Antarctica's treasures. An article in the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's publication, The Strategist, says its prizes include fishing stocks, bio-prospecting opportunities, climate science analysis and hydrocarbons with potential reserves of between 300 and 500 billion tonnes of natural gas on the continent and potentially 135 billion tonnes of oil in the Southern Ocean. That takes us back to China's fifth station on Inexpressible Island in the Ross Sea, home of the world's largest marine protected area. There's a lot of sound and fury around what the Chinese are doing because they've got money, their Antarctic program is demonstrably expanding. What I think is more interesting, and it's a consequence of this anxiety about um, China is that a number of Western uh, Antarctic states, and particularly what you know the Anglosphere countries, have suddenly started this kind of splurge of facilities upgrades and um, a buying new equipment. And what's notable about that is the concentration of that activity um, in the last few years and projected out over the next decade, which I think is really indicative that there's an attempt by those states to respond to what they see as this growing Chinese influence in the Antarctic. So they're sort of muscling up. Yes. So the Americans are substantially rebuilding McMurdo Station. The new McMurdo Station will keep the U.S. at the forefront of science and discovery in Antarctica. The United States Antarctic Program, advancing polar science in the 21st century and beyond. But also, interestingly, the establishment of of new icebreaker bases, uh, not only in the Northern Hemisphere, but also in the Southern Hemisphere. 
So that's the Americans. The British, as you will know, have um, their shiny new icebreaker, the Royal Research Ship David Attenborough. And of course, you can't come on board without mentioning Boaty McBoatface. It's what the public voted to call this ship, but instead the name's been given to this, a mini submarine. And soon it's going to be heading off to explore the Antarctic Ocean. Australia upgrades its stations quite regularly. It bought this very slick icebreaker. And this vessel is so well equipped that it will get a really holistic understanding of how the Southern Ocean ecosystem and the Antarctic continent functions. Australia also planned to build uh, a quite enormous concrete airstrip and that project was going to be the biggest engineering project ever attempted in the Antarctic. Now last week Susan Lay, the environment minister in Australia, who's responsible for the Australian Antarctic program, announced that they wouldn't be going ahead with that. We will not be constructing a 2,700 metre concrete runway, and no other country should. For environmental reasons, Alan? Ostensibly for environmental reasons. Flattening a mountain ridge with tonnes of concrete deemed a step too far. But, but also cost, because it was going to be formidably expensive. The project would have allowed year-long access, making Australia a gateway to the continent. This was also a geopolitical own goal. If you built this enormous aerodrome in response to Chinese presence in Antarctica, did you not risk encouraging the Chinese, or indeed the Russians, to build their own airstrip you know you you effectively across the rubicon would this not come home to haunt you building a costly concrete runway could have harmed australia's hard-won reputation in the region alienating allies on a continent dependent on collaboration but ending this project may open the door to those more willing to push the boundaries but the australians have also um uh, been using for the last several years uh, the Royal Australian Air Force C-17s to do airdrops in Antarctica, computer-guided parachutes, in-flight refuelling of their aircraft going to and from the Antarctic, none of which is clearly being paid for by the Australian Antarctic Division. This is all being paid for out of vote defence there. So that's Australia. Now, and, and come to our own country... In this year's budget, the government allocated $344 million for a complete rebuild of Scott Base. It will be built in Timaru and shipped in sections to be in place by 2026. The new base is a modest, safe, fit-for-purpose facility to support science for the next 50 years. If you look at the context within which the um, $300 million-plus Scott Base is situated... We've seen a number of defence purchases in the last couple of years where the items have been tagged as also having Antarctic value. So the Royal New Zealand Navy has a new fleet tanker, the Aotearoa, which is eye-strengthened. It's clearly intended for use in the Antarctic. It supports, in a formal sense, the civilian presence there, our civilian presence and the Americans. But as I've said to a number of people, would that argument have washed if we had seen the Chinese Navy, or indeed anybody else's Navy, build an eye-strengthened tanker uh, and operating in the Antarctic? I think a lot of people would have thought there was nefarious purpose behind that. The replacement Hercules and the replacements for the Orions are both identified as having advantages 
for New Zealand's abilities in the Antarctic, search and rescue, support of the national program, surveillance of fishing vessels, and so on and so forth. The Navy is still looking at a tendering for some kind of ice patrol vessel. The Navy already has two vessels with lesser ice strengthening. So we have a Navy, which will be around eight vessels, and half of them are proposed to be ice strengthened. So I've described this as a sort of a tooling up. It's not a foregone conclusion that there are nefarious purposes here, but it's it's signalling that we're viewing the Antarctic in fairly, fairly conventional strategic terms, for which these are kind of useful contingency planning. So um, any activities in Antarctica are supposed to be peaceful. You're not supposed to do any activity that would hurt the environment. Mm-hmm. So what is it? Is it the potential to make a lot of money from it? Well, oh, there are several issues raised by your question. Let me, let me unpack them sort of separately and then try to sort of assemble them in some sense at the end. First of all, the, um, the Antarctic is, is commonly viewed as being demilitarised under the 1959 Antarctic Treaty, right? So we're enjoined to only conduct peaceful purposes and not to conduct measures of a military nature. But none of these terms are defined. And although certain military activities, the testing of weapon, weapons, uh, the conducting of military manoeuvres, the building of fortifications are explicitly prohibited, you can use military personnel and military equipment in support of peaceful purposes. So much hinges on how you interpret peaceful purposes. So the formal argument uh, in New Zealand, as everywhere else, will be all of this equipment, it doesn't matter whether it's operated by a military or not, the test is whether it's only being used for peaceful purposes, and we effectively defy you to demonstrate that it's not. And that's very, very difficult to do. And remember, these demilitarization provisions, they were drafted in the late 1950s. You know, and we're a long way on from that. So if you were to try and understand what are military activities today, they'd look somewhat different from military activities in 1958 and 59. Now, what's going on here? Why why are we interested? I think there are two converging streams. One is the containment of China. As I look at the contemporary Antarctic, it's as plain as the nose on your face that there's this attempt to balance at best and contain at worst China in the Antarctic. The second factor is that under the Protocol on Environmental Protection to the Antarctic Treaty, what we call the Madrid Protocol, there is a prohibition on mineral resource activities. The only thing you can do is science. And that Madrid Protocol is open-ended. But it does have a a mechanism in it whereby a state or states could call for a review conference 50 years after its entry into force. And that 50 years after its entry into force is the year 2048, which seemed a long way ahead of us when the protocol was adopted in Madrid 30 years ago. But we're, we're more than halfway there now. And the key thing that people have from inception been concerned about is that the protocol would be lifted or modified in order to allow mineral resource exploitation in Antarctica. And the fact that we haven't 
completely ruled that out yet, leaves this, what I call a sort of twinkling green light, that governments that are active in the Antarctic think, what if? What if that is indeed the future? And so I, I interpret these, these moves as contingency planning for that too. And of course, they're converging because in the Western narrative, the great bogey, the state which is going to trash the Antarctic is always the other. And the other is the Chinese or the Russians or the Chinese and the Russians, plus other unspecified bogey states still to rear their head. So the China and the uh, minerals issue converge and this was spectra of 2048. Now, as I say, and I want to really be clear on this, there is no obligation. The Antarctic um, agreement around uh, the prohibition of mining doesn't end in 2048. That will be a choice that we make if we, if we make it. Now, we know <coughs> from excellent research published in September in Nature that the best estimates at the moment are that 60% of the proven hydrocarbon reserves of the world need to stay in the ground if we're to keep global uh, warming to 1.5 degrees by 2050. So if we're going to leave 60% of what we know are hydrocarbon reserves in the ground, we know that now, then I think it's... Uh, uh, as plain as the nose on your face again <laughs> that we need to commit never to taking out the as yet unproven hydrocarbons out of the antarctic if we could agree to do that and if we could agree to do that fairly soon then a lot of these political tensions in the antarctic would i think ease and it seems remarkable that you know we're just two weeks out from the end of the not terribly successful cop 26 in glasgow and uh, I'm having to suggest that um, we need to make some kind of commitment not to go after hydrocarbons in the Antarctic. I mean, it seems to me utterly extraordinary, given all of the advice and the insights that, uh, you know, right now we're collecting out of the Antarctic. What do you think the future is? Well, the future is what we decide it will be. One of the things that most annoys me is um, passivity on the part of people. The Antarctic is no longer adequately protected just by its remoteness, harshness and size. Uh, such is our human ingenuity that we can threaten everything, as we know from, from climate change. So if we want there still to be a place like this, then we have to decide not to do certain sorts of things then, and not to do certain sorts of things in our domestic environments. And we do have to address... Um, top of the list uh anthropogenic climate change as a matter of phenomenal urgency or there won't be the kind of antarctic experience that i had for my grandchildren's generation what do we go to war over we go to war over resources and the dignity of states and so on right and we've done this in places that at one stage were viewed as remote so we have to make jolly sure that our good fortune and good management in the Antarctic continues. And I mean, that I think is one of the things that exercises me, that that continues to be the case. 
That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded by NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced this episode. Jeremy Ansell engineered it. And thanks to Dr Alan Hemmings. Ka kite.